You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And we're very pleased. Our guest today is Francisco Lopez. Hello, Francisco. Hello. Thank you for, for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been very excited to talk to you. I know uh, we were supposed to speak a couple of years ago, and uh, that unfortunately didn't end up happening, and it's uh, hasn't left our minds, and now we're all here. <laughs> Excellent. Let's hope for the, for the best after the, uh, well, at least at this stage of the pandemic, whatever this is, uh, let's hope for the best. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we've seriously been talking about this for years. Like, one day it's going to happen. We're well, going to talk and, to Francisco. And I th- I don't know if we've mentioned it on our episodes, but yeah, we had some plans of March of 2020. Yeah. And you were actually in Los Angeles when everything closed. And you ended exactly. up having to stay in your hotel room for, you know, so that they would actually let you back. Exactly. I mean, thankfully, we're, we're actually staying with my partner. We're staying in a, in a, in a apartment. Uh, I have a good friend who is an artist and who has, he has a studio apartment in downtown LA. So mm-hmm. we're actually very lucky in that unusual um, setting for us. And uh, we, but yeah, we spend a few days. We arrived in the U.S. the day before the, uh, the, all the flights and all the borders were closed for, for travel from, the, from, the Europe, from Europe. So we, uh, uh, it was right at the very beginning, and we spent a few days just trying to go, you know, get back to, to uh, um, Europe after the, uh, the post, post-bio-apocalypse uh, situation unfolded completely in all over the U.S. And, and, and L.A. was, as you know very well, L.A. was. But, you know, I have to say one thing, is that it was actually very lucky for us those few days. While we were struggling to find a flight back, which wasn't easy, we rented a car, and I tell you, i never seen L.A. like that. We were driving in the... In the, the right? Right. Oh. All the highways were empty, you know, <laughs> which was like really, really interesting as an experience of LA. Yeah, it was like a ghost town. It was very, very strange to drive around and eerily quiet. Totally, yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. the only disadvantage, the only serious problem in the first few days is that we actually were in front of the supermarket, so that was also sort of exceptional for us. Even we have before we had a car, and we could just walk to the supermarket, but shelves were empty. So we had to choose the last remaining yogurt of a completely un- untasty flavor that was left. No toilet paper. You know the drill, the, how it was. So anyway, that's, that's we all know. Just coffee, it. yogurt, and paper towels. Very little choices. Very little choices. <laughs> but here we are today to talk about much more exciting, interesting, and pleasant things like mind expanding things absolutely like the work of francisco lopez and all month we've been talking about field recording albums field recording artists and every single person of course has mentioned you as someone who was one of the first people that they were aware of working in this realm so Let's go all the way back to 1980. Is that that is the beginning of your work, if I'm not mistaken? That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And were you you were in Madrid at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was born and raised in Madrid. So yeah, that's when when where I was, and that, that's where you know I started doing my own little experiments with sound and recordings and stuff. Yeah. And how did it all start? Where did that seed get planted? 
Uh, well, that's that's uh, for me. It's always been an interesting question because uh, m- my family um, there was never music. Uh, no one else uh, that I know of, and even going generations back, had any interest in music really. So I'm I'm not sure. I think I'm one of those people who had like a you know that's just the way you're nature, the way you are, and you have a an interest for music, even very very intuitive. And uh, I've always been interested in intuition uh, in that sense. And I suppose it has to do with my personal experience. And I, I do remember the first times that I was exposed to, let's say, unusual uh, types of music or musical experience for, for, for my context, my cultural and social context. And I always reacted in a very um, uh, intuitive way. I remember the, the first time I heard jazz music on TV. I was very little. I can't remember. I was very... This was a very unusual thing to see on TV in Spain in the late 70s. Well, actually, this will be late 60s. And that will be sort of very, very unusual. I remember there was only one TV channel, black and white, and there was no chance you would have jazz on TV. And so I, anyway, I do remember the first time as, a, as, a, as an example of experience and, and wondering about why I was so... But I thought, this is amazing. What is this kind of music? What is this thing? And so I... I, I it's just an example of, uh, I guess, the way I felt sound as, uh, as a kid and later as a teenager when I started actually doing some recordings. Uh, at the time, of course, I had very simple means and uh, I never had, uh, you know, um, options for access to, to uh, serious uh, recording equipment or studios or anything. At the beginning. So I was working for a long time with cassettes and cassette recorders, Walkman recorders, and very simple means and tape manipulation, cassette manipulation, and uh, I. But I think I'm not by far. I'm not the only case. I think there's a lot of people who started experimenting at home or in your immediate environment with whatever tools were available. And I'm, I'm a strong believer on that uh, uh, intuitive, um, naive interaction with the tools in order to generate uh, fascination, in order to generate your own uh, ways of. of uh, inventive ways of how to to work with those things whether they're recordings or something else or not recordings i think um um sort of virginal interaction with tools is always interesting and that's my experience so it came i would say out of nowhere in that sense but my interest in sound was always there and my experience of listening was always very very important and uh, and then you know it took a few years to to um, start getting in touch with uh, with some people and uh, realize that there were actually other people doing those kinds of let's say experiments and with that kind of very int- strong interest and enthusiasm towards sound and the oral whole listening experience. And you also have history as a drummer, correct? I was I was a drummer for I, I always liked music and uh, mm-hmm. had a very strong interest in music and sound, both things. And uh, so I was a drummer. Uh, for a few years, and I played. This is um, the time of the uh, new wave punk, and uh, so I was a drummer in, in several punk bands and new wave bands for for a number of years. And uh, I always had a great time as a drummer. I love drums. I love percussion. Um, there's only one thing that uh, really wasn't for me. I think after a few years of, of being in bands, is actually being in a band. It, that really didn't work for me. It's fun, you know. Anyone who's yeah. been in a band, you know, you always, you know, it's a great experience. I love playing with other people. But the number of, uh, I would say, compromises that I had, you had to do at some point, for me, it, was, it, it just didn't work. I didn't want to do other things. I wanted to do other things that were not possible in a band. And uh, the rehearsing 
is something that I really got um, tired of, like repeating the same thing over and over in order mm-hmm. to, you know, typical rehearsal in a band. It's, it's something that I, I, I got tired of that. And those two things combine at some point is like, I want to do my own thing. And, and that's also the time where you started to have um, some other tools available that were very powerful for the time, like samplers, uh, keyboards. It started to be very common in the 80s, uh, affordable equipment. And then, so that, I guess that opened uh, for me and for many other people, the possibility of doing a lot of things uh, on your own and uh, having a home studio, even if very simple, very modest. That is something that started to happen at the same time. And for me, the, the switch to that world was very natural. Were you utilizing samplers and keyboards and stuff like that in the 80s? Or were you sticking mostly with cassette and, and manipulation? Well, I had a few friends at the time in, in Madrid in, in the 80s that had a, a lot of equipment. They had a lot of gear. They had synthesizers. They had, and then they had samplers and other equipment. Um, some of them had reel-to-reel recorders. I couldn't, I couldn't afford that kind of equipment. And but I had access through my friends to to some of that equipment. Uh, this is also the time when um, I'm sure you're familiar with Splendor Geometrico. Yes, uh, correct. Yeah, yeah. We we grew up in the same neighborhood. We went to the right. same high school. We so we cool. met for the first time uh, even before Splendor Geometrico. So we knew each other from from the same neighborhood. So Arturo Lance from Splendor Geometrico. He had like to me when I was going to his place to check out some records. That's where I heard the first records of the Residents and uh, other bands at the time. SPK, uh, Throbbing Whistle, and uh, uh, he had a reel-to-reel recorder. And uh, to me, that was like, oh my god, this is like amazing. You know, this is really the things you can do, the quality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I didn't have access to that, but the uh, so my uh, interaction, my experience at the time with uh, things like synthesizers. Um, um, and, and similar equipment at the time, uh, keyboard samplers was very limited. And at some point, I had an Insonic Mirage, uh, secondhand that I got some, somewhere, and that lasted for a few months. But the keyboard thing also didn't work for me. It was great as a tool to learn some of the techniques. It was great as a tool to play a little bit with uh, you know sample recordings, but that's a, that was really not not my thing, my thing. But uh, anyway, that that is. To me, it's a good example of the uh, the whole environment at the time, techno-social environment, is a good example of, of a, a situation where you get so many people uh, with access to technology to create uh, at home that something is bound to happen, and it did. And, I mean, this is not the only historical example, and I'm very fond of the, uh, the social history of te- technology and, and creation. And I think any any underground scene, any alternative scene, um, it's it's uh, a different times in history is a good example of, of what happens when a lot of people um, have access to equivalent similar technology and when the access to that technology to start creating is very immediate. A situation like that happened in the 80s in a very strong way. And also I think it explains why uh, the whole cassette culture um, it was mm-hmm. the way it was and, uh, and unfolded in, in such a way for self-production, distribution, and this change between a lot of different people. Well, how did you get involved in cassette culture and, and start distributing the sounds that you were recording and, and producing? Well, you know, at the time, there were a lot of um, micro, seriously micro um, labels. Like uh, there was a lot of micro labels at the time were one person uh, labels. In fact, it was very typical that one person will have a cassette label with many impersonations, many different names, like band names or pseudonyms or whatever that had like different directions of, of the work this person was doing. So it was very typical to have a cassette label that had like 
say, 10 artists, five artists, and it was only one person doing the whole thing and uh, doing the different bands and different projects, whatever uh, you want to call them. And uh, so I started by, I don't remember exactly where do I get the, did I get the, the first contacts, but I do remember, um, and I guess a lot of people have referenced this, the, con- the so-called contact list of electronic music. This is something, this was a, a, a fanzine uh, uh, printed on paper that was sent by post to internationally and had like little descriptions of labels or cassette releases or artists. And uh, that was a, a way to, it was, it was done, it was published by a guy in, in Canada. I can't, re- I can't remember his name now, but um, he was just collecting all of this information by post, uh, you know, by mail, this chance of uh, mail where people will send either cassettes. So of course this was connected with the mail art scene. And uh, it was it was quite intertwined, actually. The male art and the cassette scenes were at some point one one thing. And so, anyway, there was this uh, fanzine-like lists and of contacts with postal addresses of people. And then you will basically read a description, and you will think, "Oh, this sounds interesting." And then you will send a cassette to that address, and then wait for sometimes months. And after a few months or a few weeks or whatever. You will get in the post one day. You will get um, a cassette from this guy in Canada or Australia, or whatever, and then you will listen for the first time. And then, oh, this is horrible. Or this is great, or whatever. And that's the way you will get in touch with a lot of people, because this, of course, uh, for a lot of people today, will sound you know, this is prehistoric. This is like a very slow, very limited. But the reality of it is that after a few months of doing this, you will get. I will go to the post office. I will have a mailbox, a PO box. And uh, every week I will go there and I will get like a stack of, of parcels of, uh, and you will have enough material to listen for. At some point it was too much, actually. So you can get overwhelmed with that kind of, or have enough of that material very, very soon in that network, all by post and all with uh, basically cassettes. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of us still operate in a lot of that same way today. The micro label. The excitement of... <laughs> Yeah. getting him in the mail, the excitement of connecting with people through cassettes. Do you recall some of the earliest people that you were in touch with? We, we've talked to GX Jupiter Larson said that's how he got in touch with MB. That's how he got in touch with Masami. Do you recall some of the earliest people that you got in touch with through cassette culture? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, I remember Masami Mesbo, uh, one of the first um, uh, MB, yeah, Maurizio Bianchi. In fact, I had a very intense exchange with Maurizio Bianchi and uh, then uh, SPK as well. And um, um, Hunting Lodge, Are you, I don't know if he's with Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I did. At the time, they were, uh, their first uh, albums were, were on cassette. And uh, the, uh, we exchanged a number of cassettes. And then I actually um, did a little, um, they asked me for a contribution of some sound recordings for their first LP album. So I did. And that was my first, uh, you know, contribution to a, a record, an actual record. I think this is 82 or 83 or something like is that. Is it the, the album Will? Will. Yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah. The album? Awesome. Oh, cool. That's cool. Really Heck cool. yeah. Great <laughs> album. Yes. I think a lot of people know you for your field recording work. I mean, like La Selva is probably one of the more famous or accessible pieces that people listen to. But mm-hmm. there's also works that are... Uh, more electronic in nature trying to capture something like the uh the crustacean crustacean how do you pronounce this uh 
Oh, it's 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 a portmanteau. It's like an invented uh, word, Christocianum. Christocianum, <laughs> which is like sort of a you know a mix, uh, sort of silly mix. Uh, this is for me. This is like reminds me of like when I, when you say that, I remember my teenage years actually. <laughs> so it's a mix of the word crustacean, crab like creatures, and the the um, the ocean in in Latin. So it's a mix. Yeah, it's, it was a work about. Um, um, yeah, crustaceans, um, organisms, because, you know, I'm, as, as you know, I'm a bi- also a biologist. And uh, at the time, I was, is when I was starting to do my uh, studies in entomology and in insects uh, studies. And uh, so I was really into, into those things as a reference. So, or uh, I would say as a, not an inspiration, but uh, I was connecting those two interests, I guess, my interest in science as an inspirational thing and on the work with sound. So, yeah, that's one example. Well, and insects make such otherworldly sounds. Like it seems very they, natural that that would inspire you. They do, definitely, and um, and also in terms of perception. And when you learn about uh, uh, the things they can do and the way, um, you always wonder what kind of world do they live in. And then you realize because you know it's a completely different uh, uh, mm-hmm. way of perceiving, completely different way, completely different lifespan, the transformation that some of them go through. Um, Insect societies are really, really a very strange thing. They operate in amazing ways. So it's it's such an incredible um, world. It's so big also. The diversity, the numbers, uh, not only numbers of species, but also, you know, in terms of biomass, and there's more, much more biomass of all these creatures than, than even of humans. We, we have taken over uh, a lot of the... Uh, control of of the world in a, in a very bad way, but uh, we are this world. You know, is really not ours in the, in that sense, in, in yeah. any imaginable sense. Not only in the mm-hmm. sense of the, the diversity, but also even in biomass is not our world. So we are uh, one particular simple exa- example of what life can be on Earth. While we have so many other incredible examples of of, of life and how life can unfold. So insects, you know, are the most diverse group of creature organisms that exist on our planet. And uh, they have an, an, an astonishing catalog of, of strategies and, and ways of, of doing what you need to do in order to, to be alive and survive and evolve in, the, in this planet. So they're absolutely incredible. And um, yeah, so my fascination, of course, still to this day, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not teaching biology anymore, but, but I keep my fascination. So that has been hand in hand, science. Uh, music or sound or uh, audio work has been honey had my entire life. Yeah, I, I think that really comes across and it's something, you know, that I appreciate and frequently when hearing something that I may think is an insect or not, like, you know, having that respect for a world that you don't understand, I think that increases your mystification with the world we live in like mm-hmm. insects communicating in ways with chemical messages sonically that we don't even perceive or understand I think is so fascinating the way that they perceive time mm-hmm. um and and all of these things certainly you know are encapsulated in, in what you're doing it's great I mean insects you know uh we need them to live but they certainly don't need us that's, that's that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. I think I always had a fascination for those creatures that uh, don't look like us. I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. um, ethical principles in in uh, the ecological thinking or the environmentalist uh, thinking of today and and of the past. 
um, that we're going right now, we're going through a very intense period of a sort of awareness of I've seen several cycles of this. And I, when I was studying, uh, my, doing my degree in biology, uh, that was not, it was much less than, than it is today. Uh, uh, it, so there's moments, uh, historical moments, uh, cultural moments where the awareness is on a high peak and then sometimes it's not so clear. There's always some awareness, of course, but it's not, so, now, right now is a very high point of our awareness. A lot of talk about the environment, climate change, everything, mm -hmm. and uh, and all of that is, for, is of course true. But the awareness doesn't keep the same level of intensity throughout. It will change, and who knows what it will be in the future. But my point is, I think it's important to realize that, uh, of course, if we destroy the, all of these forms of life, and we if we do if we keep doing the things that we do, we destroy the. Um, and it, it, there's always this argument: we destroy ourselves. This is some. This is a way to destroy ourselves. This is self-inflicting damage, and, uh, and, and that is of course true. But I don't think this is the most important argument because this is a selfish argument. It is also an anthropocentric argument to um, stop doing the things we we, we tend to do uh, naturally as as social humans so far in history. My point is um, one thing I learned from my interest in entomology, it's also that something you will learn if you have an interest in botany, for example, in plants in general, is that there are creatures that are completely alien to the way we are. And uh, uh, just because they're so different, and uh, some of them, um, we shouldn't um, you know, care more for the ones that are closer to us or more similar to us, which is a very common thing to do, for example, for designation of uh, protected areas, national parks and other uh, protected areas. So I think we've have uh, evolved a little bit in this in this thinking, but still a long way to go. And one thing you learn from insects is that is that they're alien creatures that we should realize they've been here millions of years before we were here, and uh, they will be here long after we're gone. And um, right. it's important to realize uh, that to be humble in the way we think we are responsible with the planet. Did your study and work in biology? coincide with you with your beginnings in sound or was it something that came later what was the evolution same, of that same time i remember even before having studied biology i always had an interest in a fascination for insects and uh, biology and everything at the same time that i had a fascination for sound both things were there um throughout um i i did this more the formal studies Something I never did is formal studies in music or in sound engineering and sound technology. I did music as a kid. I've always had a, a strong interest in music. But when I did, when I studied, uh, I studied two years of, of music, uh, solfege, you know, reading, uh, started um, reading music. At the time, you had to, the musical education, it was very old fashioned, uh, at least in Spain. And uh, you had to first learn how to read music before you could touch an instrument. You were not allowed to. I wanted to study piano, oh. and uh, you couldn't do that. You first had to learn how to read, uh, you know, music, scored music. And after two, after three years, then you will be allowed to touch for the first time the instrument. And uh, well, that I couldn't bear to. to I did. To, I was so boring. It was horrible to. Uh, so I couldn't. I think it was. I was a victim of a very old-fashioned uh, time and place to uh, study music. But other than that, um, I didn't need it, and I, I'm happy in a way that I didn't I didn't do that. Um, but I did my formal studies and training in, in biology. I did a PhD in biology, and I was teaching biology for 20 years and doing research in biology. It was the research in biology that also allowed me to 
in different countries to allow, allow me to have a very direct, very intense, and very extensive um, experience and interaction with a lot of natural environments. And that definitely, completely transformed my, my uh, idea of what it is to work with sound, to compose, to um, work with sound in general. So whether, uh, coming back to the field recording thing, uh, whether I'm working with so-called field recordings, which is a term I don't use anymore, but uh, whether I'm working with those recordings or, or not, whether I'm doing something that sounds to the listener as natural or not, everything that I do, I'm aware that is completely informed and influenced by my experience of listening in the world. Uh, what, what is your preferred term for field recordings? Well, the thing is, uh, there's nothing wrong with the term itself, uh, mm-hmm. but it's more the connotations, the cultural, connot- aesthetic yeah. cultural connotations that it has today. In fact, field recording is a term that is also used by people who record traditional music. And they go, and it's been used for decades, since the beginning of the 20th century, to refer in that particular realm of, of recording practice, refers to the practice of going somewhere, small village in Romania, and recording the music of that small village. And that's what they call field recording. So it's a term that is not really precise. It's not very... Um, but anyway, uh, the, the main thing for me is that today, field recording, in my um, view, or to my taste, is, is too much... Uh, directed towards a representation of the world, a replication, a simulation, a reenactment of something. Uh, to me, this aspect of a recording is the least interesting aspect of the act of recording. I'm not interested in representation. I think is somehow futile. And I do respect and I do understand representation. We all use representation. But I, I think it's not the most interesting aspect of recording. And because today, field recording, is laden with this particular meaning in terms of the practice, and I'm not interested in that in that particular aspect, then I prefer not to use it. I think your recordings, you sculpt these recordings that you make into evocative pieces that can transport us somewhere, but you're not trying to recreate the place that you actually made the recordings. You're trying to communicate something new and artistic with these recordings that you've taken. Be, well, that's of course that's that's the case in, in many in many uh, works. But I think there's there's no real possibility of doing something you know transparent, uh, direct, uh, um, without any uh, personal touch. Uh, any decision that you make when you do a recording, it's like you know photography is similar in that particular sense, in the sense of the the conflict with representation, the challenge of what it is to do a natural uh, photograph or in what way a photograph is natural or not, is a representation of reality, to what degree, what is the amount of artistic content of a photograph, etc. The thing, I think the question is, uh, to me, that the history of uh, recorded sound and the history as, as compared as an exercise with the history of photography, it's in its infancy in terms of the, uh, um, the theoretical discussion or the uh, the way um, is understood, not only by people who practice that, not only by people who do recordings or f- uh, photography, but by the general, say, general public, the general, the average person. And, uh, and those two histories are very different. And uh, in the history of photography, very early on, already in the 19th century, there was a public discussion, social, not only for people specialized in photography, uh, practitioners, but also the general uh, public, there was a general discussion on whether or not 
a photograph is a representation of reality, a mm -hmm. faithful representation, and whether or not a photograph can be art or when or how. This discussion is still is, is there today, but it, it, we have almost two centuries of discussions about this. In the case of recorded sound, of not music, but recorded sound, there's very little. It only started very recently. So because of this, I think we, uh, with sound, we have sound recording, we have a very different position conceptually. You talk to the average person, it's very, very hard to defend the position that you might be doing music or something like music or something artistic without any transformation, without any addition of instruments, without any manipulation, so-called. So it's, it's, we're in a different position. So I think that even whether or not you transform those sounds, whether or not you consciously, intentionally try to do something artistic, you're not being transparent. And uh, I think, um, and also what's the point of, of more representation? We have so much representation today. It's just, mm -hmm. we are absolutely flooded in representation like never before. I think in fact, to me, this is one of the main issues that we have today is an abuse and, uh, of representation. Is, is that part of what drives you to untitle pieces and potentially not use representational artwork um, for, for your recorded sounds? Yeah, I mean, it, it, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. It has to do. It has to do with that. I think the the openness of the work. I think to me is very, very relevant. The openness, uh, meaning that, um, I mean, there's there's nothing intrinsically wrong about titles, of course, and it's not a, a matter of principles. Um, but when you title something, and when there's a title that relates to something, you, in my view, um, you somehow you're restricting some of the options, some of the possibilities for the listener. I think the uh, the making of music or something like music, the uh, the creation of um, out of sound um, of something that becomes that other type of experience that is not just simply a signal or or try to be a simulation, but something that has uh, you know an intention of what we will call artistic or musical or equivalent. It comes actually from the act of listening um, fundamentally not so much from the act of generating the sound or reproducing the sound. So if you don't have a, uh, that kind of listening uh, in, on the listening end, I don't think you have music or you have art or anything. So it, it's always waiting for a listening um, degree of attention, dedication to become music. I don't think music is by the act of producing the sound in a musical way. I think music becomes, anything becomes music with the act of listening musically or artistically or spiritually or the way you want whatever way you want to call it and so it requires that that act is an act of will upon sounds in in my view but it requires um, that strong that relevant act of will how have you found your listening has evolved through the years well, i would say dramatically i would say a lot uh, has evolved definitely i think i can hear my spirit, my, uh, uh, my, all my being listens in a completely different way now uh, because of the, uh, um, well, because of the dedication, because of the time spent and doing that and because my interest has grown over the years. And so my listening, I would say today is we're much more fine-tuned. Um, I listen more profoundly. I listen more in detail to everything. Um, I listen with more um, respect to a lot of different things. 
um, my choices of what, when to switch to that mode of listening are different uh, because I think you switch from different modes of listening. I'm not constantly, it will be impossible to constantly be listening with that degree of, of uh, attention and that degree of uh, intention. So my switch to that mode of, of uh, intensive, dedicated uh, musical listening is it's different, it's more fine-tuned. And um, uh, so I would say, my, I think to me, this is like a, um, you know, I'm really into wine. So wine, uh, enjoying wine is a matter of, of course, of experience as well. And uh, the more you experience that, the more you try different things and you choose your, your personal taste in wine and your, your taste gets refined over the years. And uh, it, it's very similar in that sense. And I think you can work on it. You can develop it and you should pay attention to that kind of developing of your capacity to listen. And so that has been happening for sure. And I would say today I can more immediately um, listen more directly and more profoundly and more with more richness in there than, than years ago. That's for sure. In fact, just to mention an example, Greg, you, you mentioned before La Selva. La Selva is, is a piece that I did many years ago. And uh, to me, it was uh, very important. It had a very, my time in Costa Rica was in the rainforest there was very, very transformative and important. But today, when I listen to La Selva, I think it's a very immature uh, sound work. I think I have today, or in recent years, much more mature work uh, compositionally, artistically, uh, with uh, recordings of Rainforest. What about it do you find to be immature? Um, I think there's very little, uh, there's too many things in there, too many different things um, in terms of fragments of recordings. Of course, each one of of those uh, sections or fragments has as many things as as they were happening in the rainforest because I didn't do any overlaying, any transformation of the sounds, and, and no uh, mixing of different things. So uh, all of that is natural, quote unquote. But the um, the sequence of fragments, the tempo of of that piece, I think is very uninteresting. Um, I think it, it has it contains very interesting materials. But today, if I had to go back to that, I will do something very different. It was also constrained by the limitations of, of the CD format. So it was constrained to one hour because the original release was on CD. And uh, today, I you know, have much more freedom to, in terms of releasing, I mean, uh, to have mm-hmm. something that doesn't require that, that length, which is a blessing. You know? So I will work in a very different way. And um, in my choices of uh, editing, selection of materials, a lot of field, field uh, recording work, I think, uh, has too many. It tries to include too many things, too many examples of prototypical things of an environment or a place or a city. And I think that's normally a mistake. It becomes sort of a postcard. And uh, I don't have that feeling towards La Selva. I don't think it's a postcard. But I think my choices of duration, transitions, and uh, tempo will be different. When you're in the jungle, in the area that you're recording, what is the relationship between the environment, the machine, and you? How do all those three things work together? Well, you know, I, I have I've talked about this many times. I have a very strong respect to for uh, machines of uh, gathering fra- fragments of reality, um, what I like to call non-cognitive machines like a, a, a recorder, a sound recorder, or a photographic camera. You know, now we have, of course, cognitive machines. Most of the machines that we have now that relate to reality, they have some degree of cognition or something like cognition, like face recognition, for example, which is the classic example of today, or voice recognition. And, but the, uh, 
the, within the realm of non-cognitive machines, like using a, a sound recorder in the traditional way. I think, well, to me, the most interesting thing that these types of machines do is precisely that, is that they don't think when they're, you know, connecting, relating to reality, when they're recording. And this is an advantage uh, I see it as an advantage because it's something we can't do. We cannot uh, relate to, to the world without thinking. We have models of reality. We have uh, pre, um, before we see anything, before we hear anything, we have already built in those uh, models of cognition. It's very, very difficult to bypass those models. It's not impossible, but it requires a huge amount of effort and practice. It'd be really nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be able to to move around and, and recognize the world at every step. So those things are logical, natural, and uh, we need them. But um, that doesn't mean it's the only way to relate to reality. So machines like these types of machine or recorder have that ability. And I don't see those machines as their main purpose being to re represent reality as we do, as we try to do. So when you have that kind of perspective on those machines, Uh, a situation where I am recording an environment, I don't see, I never try to capture that environment. This is a very common term for field recording, capture the environment. I don't think, I think it's a futile thing to do. It's a futile attempt. Instead, I see myself in my environment and I tend to also give a lot of autonomy to these machines. So, for example, it's been my common practice for many, many years, um, since the beginning, I would say, is to leave the recorder somewhere and move away. In, in natural environment, this is also um, an advantage because there's a lot of creatures that will stop uh, doing whatever they're doing sonically because you're there. And even if you think you're hiding or whatever, they see you, they smell you, they hear you, and uh, they stop doing whatever they, they're doing. So you're an interference in that, in that environment, and um, you might choose to, to be like that in that environment. That's fine. But I've done this for many years. And uh, in the past, it was only possible for a very short period of time. Today... It's because of the autonomy of the batteries of the equipment mm. and tapes and everything. Today, it's possible to do it for you know days on end. So um, I like to preserve that autonomy. I respect that autonomy of the machines uh, cognitively, perceptually, and also in terms of where the machine is. And I never have an interest in replicating my own experience. I never record with headphones, for example, when I'm working in the field. Never. I don't. I'm. I'm not interested in having a mediated. Um, experience of the environment. So there's two different creatures listening when I'm doing that kind of work. The machine is there doing its own listening, whatever that is, and I'm doing my own without the machine. I don't like to be, I don't like to have my most precious moments of most focused and dedicated attention being mediated by the microphone and the headphones. I think that's a big mistake. And I think that's a lot of, that is the common standard practice of field recording. And I have no interest in that. I think uh, previously, though, you have made recordings where you are very much in those recordings, uh, like, say, some of the works you did with Bizarre Verlag of the uh, sort of uh, street life audio tours. How did those come about and, and how did you how did you make those and what was the inspiration for doing that? Well, that's, that's, that was at the time when I was doing, you know, recordings with a Walkman in my pocket or, or you know, in my hands. And I had to I'm just going to be different. I did a few of those in cities in, uh, in Europe and then some in South America. And uh, the um, it was very simple. I didn't know what I was what I was doing really. I was just trying out things, recording things. In fact, for years I thought I was doing you know soundscapes or film recording until I realized that I wasn't really or I had no real interest in those. But 
the, the experimentation, the experience of trying out things and then listening to the recordings, um, it was very formative. It really taught me a lot of lessons. The first lesson I learned a long time ago when I was listening to recordings of, of that kind, sort of casual sound walk uh, recordings, was that how different those things were, not only in terms of, not in the sense of how deficient they, they were in, as compared to the real experience, but how different they were as a, as a, by themselves, as something of interest by itself. I think one of the things that happens with recording, as it happens with a, you know, photography, a video, is that something new is generated that is not out there. It's something different. And the way we re I relate to recordings is in such a way. So that was one of the lessons that I learned with my experience of trying to do sort of soundscapes and something like that. One of our favorite releases is the Zoic Zone CD. And this features a lot of collaborations with multiple people like John Hudak, Illusion of Safety. You've worked with a lot of artists in collaboration. Yes. Was that something you just always wanted to do from the beginning? These people you're getting in contact with, hey, let's do something together. Was that just always part of what you wanted to do? Well, as, as you probably know, that was the ethos and the common practice in the cassette network. And um, so collaborating. It was the uh, it was sort of intrinsic. It was part of it, um, collaboration. So of course you were not just changing sort of finished uh, releases or cassettes or whatever um, albums, but you were changing materials to work with. And one of the um, one of the interesting uh, aspects of this community was precisely that being able to collaborate at a distance. Of course, this at the time couldn't be um, in real time, but you could collaborate at a distance by sending recordings materials there were materials really and you wouldn't call those things pieces or it was just materials sound materials and then you would receive um the same or and then it was back and forth a very slow process but very fruitful very interesting process so collaboration was um intrinsic to to the uh, existence of the community of, of the underground experimental music community and I, I think it is of course still today in a different way but it was from the very beginning in that kind of network and um so I don't think you will really think about it in a different way. I don't think you will have to actively, or I'm interested, I'm going to try to make collaborations. It just happened naturally, and it was the common thing to do. I learned so much from that um, experience of collaboration. And I think I consider that to be my sort of school, you know, my, my learning um, um, on not only, I would say more aesthetically than technically. You were exposed to very crazy ideas, very out of nowhere ideas. To me, one of the beauties of um, sort of communities, alternative independent communities, especially when they're very large, when they become very large, is that, of course, when they become large, as, as, as large as they are today, you know, millions of people, there is this, this question of, oh, there's so much stuff. You know, a lot of it is very interesting. I hear this all the time. It, yeah, it might be, but the price you pay is abundance, overabundance, overflow of overdose of, of things and information and material and creation and people doing things. That is the price you pay in order to have crazy ideas also possible, new things that nobody else has thought of before also possible. So for me, that, that price that today is much higher than it was in the past is a price worth paying to have to dig so, so much stuff, to have to get rid of things, you have to stop information coming at you, and we all have, you know, have to deal with it. And that's the reality of the world we live in. And to me, this is the price you pay in order to have the option that anyone in principle can try, anyone could do it, 
And uh, this is, to me, was one of the interesting things about the cassette network uh, in a different way back then as it is today, is that you could have like really crazy um, things, um, really innovative, out of nowhere ideas coming to you in the form of a collaboration. So collaborations serve the purpose of, of a learning experience, a very interesting one, and based on the principle that anything goes, anything could happen, and of course, you know, with limitations, te te technical limitation, even aesthetic limitations. Um, but uh, within those limitations, there was, you know, so much territory to to, and anyone could try. Collaboration was about that, and is it served the purpose of generating um, new ideas in a very interesting way, even if you have to pay the price of of overdose. With something like Zoic Zone, did you have the idea? for the album and present it with the collaborators or was it some collaborative pieces that you saw? Oh, this is, these all seem to fit together in this idea that I have for the Zoic Zone album. Uh, it's more the second. Uh, it's more like, uh, yeah, I sort of asked um, all of these friends to, to send me materials. I started uh, developing this idea of this, you know, at the time I was reading about um, abyssal sounds, um, deep ocean um, biology. So um, I was reading about that in biology, and you know it's absolutely fascinating. And uh, so uh, that was a very loose inspiration for the work. But it, at some point, it became you know a, a driving force of decisions made within my limitations of aesthetic at the time. And uh, because of my interest in, in what I just described of having other people um, contributing with with their materials, with their choices of things. Then, I've, um, and because I was doing a lot of collaboration at the time, um, I asked all these friends to to send me materials, and all of them came on, with a few exceptions on on that tape, digital tape. Uh, all of them came on cassette, so the original things were sent to me on cassette. And I worked and I created a Zoe Sound with a with a four track Porta Studio with a four track cassette recorder, and that was the master was made on a, on a four track. I always loved a Zoic Zone as a sonic concept. Because I, I I think about deep ocean to fall asleep at night as meditation, but the idea of a creature that never reaches a hard surface in the entirety of its life, it never sees the bottom, it's always in the middle, it never touches anything hard, and it's always in a perpetual float, just in terms of sound. I love that idea. It is it is a pretty incredible uh, way of living, actually. There's so many creatures that live in that kind of world you described. You know? it's, a, it's a world that has no ceiling and no bottom. And uh, it's a world that, um, because some of the ocean creatures, they come to the surface, but many of them don't. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a really a strange, uh, um, and also it makes, makes you think about, you know, um, life in other possible worlds. You know, a lot of astrobiology have to do with this idea of an ocean that has no, you know, there's no surface as such. It's just an ocean that is contained in a, in a frozen world. Um, um, and that is, an op is, is a possibility. Oh, yeah. Even in the solar system, there's, I think it's a, a Titan. I think it's, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a moon, and it's, it's basically frozen, and they, they think that, uh, I think it's Titan, I can't remember, or Europa. No, you think it's Europa. And uh, I think they, there is a, a, um, a chance that it's a, it's a frozen world, so it's a crust, a frozen crust, but inside they know there's water, and it could be, you know, there could be life in a world that has no light at all, and uh, there's no cracks in the ice and no need for them. So in that world, there will be all the creatures and all the life will be the way you describe it. So there's floating in this immense world 
three-dimensional with no up, no down. It's a fascinating, you know, thing to to think about. There might might be worlds like that. Yeah, because imagine living in the sky, like those things tend to touch something else, but that deep ocean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's truly just perpetual float. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, and also if you think about the uh, the very deep ocean where there's never light, there's never been light, mm-hmm. and also where all the organic matter depends on what is falling from the surface. There are some exceptional uh, environments and in, in the ocean where the energy is not, uh, they're not based on sun, uh, original, you know, the sunlight as a first source of energy. They're based on thermal and thermal um, um, eruptions of, uh, of hot water and uh, minerals, but most of the oceans and most of the creatures that live in the deep ocean are dependent on what happens and what falls from the surface. And so their world is a very strange world where food is completely unpredictable. There's no seasons as we understand mm-hmm. it. There's no flowering, something that happens at a, at a particular point in time. And uh, there's nothing that you can guarantee. So they live very, very long lives and very, very slow lives. And that is, again, not only because it's dark, but because everything is so slow and so long that that is also, uh, uh, even at a conceptual level, is an inspiration for, okay, what if I work with sound, keeping this in mind or imagining something like this? Well, also, you have done many live performances where... The audience is blindfolded or at least encouraged to be blindfolded, giving total darkness, sensory deprivation. Was this part of where this idea came from? And when did you start doing those performances? Right. I think as the blindfolds, I think I started using blindfolds sort of in a systematic public way like this in the mid, uh, mid-90s. Um, and... Um, they just came as a, as a natural, simple, cheap solution to the problem of if you want to do a dark, a performance in the dark, um, the question of having a space completely dark is not really possible uh, in most situations. It's very, very, very difficult to have real darkness. And also, there's always like emergency lights or, and also, you know, I'm performing in the middle of the space with equipment, there are lights of the equipment, so you can't have a completely dark space in those circumstances. And how to do it in an easy way um, uh, fast, simple, cheap in, in any imaginable space. Well, blindfolds are a natural choice. And I mean, I always highlight, I always stress, uh, as you said, blindfolds are voluntary, so I never will force anybody to use right. blindfolds. So I made that clear also. I always make that very clear. And, um, and the second thing is that, that I learned from the use of the blindfolds you know, over many performances is that it's not only that when you don't see uh, we all hear better. We're not seeing, of course, because of a natural, uh, you know, change in our perceptive capabilities. Uh, because uh, the visual component is so dominant, so we hear better. It's not only that. It's also that this is a situation. It's a social collective situation. There's a group of people. The blindfolding yourself is voluntary, so that is closer to a collective ritual, game, experience, whatever you want to call it. Voluntary, social, together. We're always doing this thing because we want to do it. And that is completely different. It, it, it is in terms of listening and in terms of what uh, people, the degree to, of attention of people in the audience to the situation. So I understand that it might not work for some people, but in my experience, it's predominantly, overwhelmingly, most people think it's a great idea, especially after doing the performance. 
and it really works. And I love the component, the collective ritual component of it, the dedication. It's your responsibility, if you want to do it, to create the music through the listening. And this is a, a collective thing that we all, you know that you're listening in such conditions, surrounded by other people that are doing the same thing. And so this is, to me, a particular situation. So it's more the social aspect of enhancing your listening, that it really counts with the blindfold. And that's why I continue doing it disembodied social situation it's it, it goes in that direction definitely mm-hmm. totally because you are uh it's an interesting uh, situation you are um somehow with a blindfold you are you know you're sort of in, in a way separated but more connected with the rest of the people because you know uh, they're doing it so it is it pro- promotes a kind of disembodiment uh voluntary dis- disembodiment and there's no question that um any voluntary temporary um a reduction on, on your perceptive uh, you know, capabilities, especially the visual, it automatically enhances all the others. So disembodiment has to do also with that kind of voluntary, um, temporary uh, refusal of some of the of your perceptive capabilities. capabilities. It automatically, uh, immediately uh, enhances all the other possibilities and your options, I believe, for disembodiment, for penetration into um, a, a sonic ex- experience. When did you start playing live? When I could, when I had the chance right to away. do it. <laughs> when I had the chance to do it. Yeah, for many years, that was not an option. In fact, for many years when I was doing working recordings, even doing releases, I never thought that would be an option. Uh, in my immediate environment in Spain, it wasn't, uh, certainly for, for many years. And uh, in fact, <clears throat> I think one of my, um, uh, if I remember correctly, the first time I did a, a small tour was in the U.S. And one of my first performances was in New York, in New York City. And um, that was in early, very early 90s, 92, I think. And before that, I had been working for many years, but never had the chance to, to perform. And of course, the first performances, and I also performed in San Francisco in the same year. And those were, you know, very small venues and very uh, um, alternative uh, venues. But it was amazing to be able to, to do those things, uh, you know, Life with a even if small with an audience, and uh, so I would say I started performing as as soon as I could. And first, I thought again, uh, there was a learning experience for me. First, I thought that performing was about playing something you've done before, and uh, I learned the practice and the the uh, the mysteries of, of a live performance through uh, doing a lot of performances. And then I realized over the years that performing is a very different thing. Your choices, in my opinion, have to do have to be done live, and it's very very important to be very attentive to the live situation, the sound of the space, the particular situation where you are. So all my performances uh, for many years now I pay a lot of attention to those um, uh, circumstances. So I never perform pe- very 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 rarely. I perform a, a piece or a finished work doing a live version of that work. Instead, I choose all kinds of materials and different things and mix them and combine them depending on the actual space and depending on the actual sound system. So this is something that I learned through many performances, um, and many opportunities to perform in all, all kinds of, of spaces. As soon as I had the opportunity, I, I realized it's something I really um, enjoy doing. And uh, I think I'm good at that. I'm not good at many things technically, but I think I'm good at performing and I absolutely love performing. I really, it's one of the things that I like the most. So I, been missing because of the pandemic for quite a while now. 
For sure. Who were you in contact with in New York and San Francisco at the time? Uh, well, New York, um, John Hudak um, was, a, you know, we're close friends at the time. I was staying with him in, in his apartment in Brooklyn when I, the first time I went to, to the U.S. Um, um, Chop Shop, Scott Councilman. Scott, yeah. yeah. One of my best friends. And uh, for many, many years, we are like brothers. And uh, uh, he was uh, also, you know, uh, big, big uh, reference. Big. Uh, we we did so many things together. We have never done a collaboration actually together, formal collaboration. But we've lived together through so many things. He came to the Amazon when I was doing the workshop there. Then he came to South Africa as well oh, wow. with, with the South African workshop. And we've traveled together in many places. I've stayed at his place in New York so many times. He's like my second home. So, um, yeah, I would say um, Scott, Chop Shop, um, Jen Ken Montgomery, um, also um, great old friend. And when he was doing Generator and uh, the label and the project and the, and the store in New York. So those were in New York. Those were my main contacts. And what about in San Francisco? San Francisco at the time, well, uh, Michael Jindro, um, Crawling with Tarts. Uh, Michael Jadro and Suzanne Dickers, and uh, they were the ones who organized, Michael organized uh, the performance in, in San Francisco. I don't remember the name of the venue, but this is a long time ago, but, but he, he was the one who, who organized that. Scott Konzelman also contributed some of the recordings from your uh, Buildings New York release, yes? Correct. Yeah, at the time when I did the project in New York, uh, he was uh, helping me. I couldn't be in New York the, uh, the entire period of time that we were doing the recordings. And so I went there uh, different trips to um, work with the organization Creative Time, who was the, the uh, they were the promoters, the organizers of that project. They were doing this thing called um, Art in the Anchorage. That was in the Anchorage of the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, which was closed, of course, after September 11. In fact, the project was all the recordings and all the studio work and the presentation of the project at the Anchorage of the Brooklyn Bridge was done in 2001, in July 2001. That was right before uh, of course, September 11, and uh, that was the, the last project they could organize in the Anchorage. So Scott, he was already living in New York, so um, he helped me doing a lot of the, uh, uh, with some of those recordings that are in for, for the project of the buildings, yeah. When did you realize that you had grown, your reach and, and your material had grown beyond cassette culture and you started working outside of it, working with an organization like doing something with the Anchorage or, uh, you know, performing these shows overseas? Yeah, that coincides in my case with uh, with uh, when we already were in the uh, sort of in the CD era, uh, even for independent releases uh, before CDRs, of course. But when there were already some, you know, so it had already moved from the cassette uh, times into the more the CD um, period, and uh, but yes, I guess I started receiving a few invitations. I think actually Azoic Zone, that was my first CD release. It was very instrumental. The album, the release, was very instrumental in getting me opportunities, particularly in the U.S. And uh, I got, a, for example, I got an invitation for uh, um, contributing some uh, music, a sort of a soundtrack for um, um, a choreographer in New York for a dance company in New York, Ralph Lemon Dance Company in New York, because of Azoic Zone. I also got other... Um, opportunities, people who got the album and they, they, they contact me um, to for possible projects and invitations. Very, uh, at the beginning, small scale with a few exceptions. And it was because of that. I don't think the cassettes uh, will have had that kind of reach. They had an immense reach 
for the cassette community and for a lot of different people and to be to to uh, create all these interesting contacts and networks and uh, that was that was amazing and that was the best thing about it but i think it wasn't until the city releases um, time when some of these other more uh, you know more professional uh, more um, you know bigger projects uh, started to happen I think some of the, I mean, a lot of the the classic cassettes are like editions of 50 and very small labels, like you said, like one person running this imprint. And maybe the CD also gave an additional, uh, you know, distribution and thousands of copies where something could get into more people's hands or get into stores and perhaps be found by people who didn't already, weren't already tapped into the cassette culture network as well. Yes, for sure. I think the number of copies had an influence in that, but I think it's also that some people will take something seriously only if it was on a, on a release. That was in the format of in the form of a vinyl, an LP, for example, released in during the eighties until you know the the nineties, and uh, you will be taken more seriously by s- certain people only if you had like sort of a proper record, which was impossible for most people at the time. Certainly for me, you know, that was very very expensive, very unaffordable. You needed also you know sort of a license to press the records. It was very very complicated and uh, expensive. And then the distribution, of course. But the CDs had that very positive aspect for a while. There was a period where CDs were possible to to make releases of 500 copies. And uh, this is, you know, a sizable number of copies. But it was possible. It wasn't cheap, but it was possible for many more people to release CDs than it was to release vinyl, a vinyl LP in the 80s. And I think that had a, a had consequences, had an impact on the work of, of uh, and the possibilities of a number of people before CDRs. So I think it has to do with how, you know, people outside of the most immediate underground environment will take uh, those things, uh, how seriously they will take those things. I think thinking of Spain in the 80s, the the most obvious people pressing vinyl and getting records out would have been Disco's Geometrico and the Splendor Geometrico's imprint. And you have a collaboration project with Arturo as well, right? Uh, Biomechanica? Yeah, that's right. I mean, as I mentioned before, we, we've known each other for our entire life, but we never did any collaboration. And recently, well, recently in 2012, I think, we started, um, um, you know, we decided, oh, let's do something together. You know, it's like we should do something together. And uh, so we started doing that. And then Arturo, who who is um, very non-tech savvy, he really is not really good uh, with tech stuff, uh, recording or whatever, but he has an amazing intuition for rhythm and for other things. And he's, he's a genius of a, on stage. I think he's amazing. He's like a total punk uh, on stage, like a, with total control. He's really, really good on stage. He transformed into, he's one of those people who transform into somebody else on stage. And he does it amazingly well. And, and, and then he is very good uh, at creating, generating what I consider to be very, very interesting seeds of you know, rhythmical material. So this is the way we work. He sent me uh, some, what I will call seeds of uh, rhythmic material, not just rhythmic basses, because I, I ended up transforming all the rhythms he sent to me. But I think it's really incredible, um, fruitful, very, very um, rich uh, material in terms of ideas, core ideas. And then I work with those things in the studio, and then I transform and, and mix and, and everything. And, and that's the way we collaborate, and it's very good. So we've been doing this since then, but we only produce one album. Well, we have a, sort of a live album, but then we produce a main album. And we are now working, starting to work on another one. We're not in a rush. 
and we both you know have many other things to to work on and uh so i don't know how long it will take but that's still there and i really enjoy working with arturo and uh and uh, doing this all this stuff that is more like i would say techno oriented yeah you you mentioned having a lot of other projects and that's i think i guess another thing that you're very known for is you're you're incredibly prolific you have you know what approaching 200 releases out i think um um, well, there's, there's many more. It depends on how you look. One of the newer, what, the Hidden Island music is says it's untitled 398. That's right. So yes. is there is there 398 releases or how do you designate those? What is a release, a piece, etc.? Right. Well, I, I make a difference between, I think this is also for most musicians, but maybe I'm, it's a bit confusing with numbers or whatever, but it's uh, follow the same principle. It's like for me, there is like pieces or works or uh, my uh, work, um, and then there's releases. Sometimes a release will contain several pieces. Sometimes a release is made with a combination of different pieces, uh, the way they were in the original albums or whatever. So I make a difference between those two things. So the numbering system goes for my pieces. That's my personal numbering system. It's not the number of releases. Like the number of releases is something like around almost 700 releases. If I put uh, my solo releases and collaborations and compilations with other artists, it's, it's something in that order uh, wow. of number of releases. In terms of number of pieces that I created, my pieces, my work uh, that I consider to be, okay, this is a piece, some of them longer, some of them shorter, but uh, in, in terms of that number, it's, it's around 400, yeah. How have you managed to stay so prolific? Are you just constantly working on sound projects? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I love it. I just love it. That's the only explanation. If you love something, <laughs> it's very easy, actually. <laughs> so how... I have to imagine there are plenty of pieces that are that are unreleased at this point, too, right? If you, if you have that many, there's... Well, yeah, there's, there's, the, plenty, yeah, there's plenty of material, let's say unfinished materials, because this. All kinds of imaginable degrees of uh, evolution of those materials. Some of them are, and it's hard to tell. You know, sometimes when a piece is finished, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's an irrelevant question. But some materials are sort of in very initial stages of of development or evolution, from my perspective. So things are really great, but they are not part of any piece, and those things are not released. And then I have some finished albums or pieces or whatever that are that I consider to be finished. And they are in the pipeline somewhere. They are not released yet, but they're going to be released. So all kinds of combinations of all these different possibilities. Do you vary the amount of time you spend working on a piece? Do you, do you ever do anything really quickly? Or do you like to take your time? Both. both. I think I work in, in, in both ways. Some, sometimes uh, a piece unfolds in one day, uh, a track or, or something even longer that might unfold in one day. And but I, and sometimes there are pieces that I've spent twenty years working on, on them. I recently, uh, last year, yeah, last year, I finally uh, released through this um, uh, Bandcamp label that I have called Two Headed Snake, which is collaborations with duo duo collaborations with artists. And uh, I finally finished a piece that I was doing um, sort of in the making with Daniel Mensch in, um, in Portland, Oregon, um, also a very good old friend of mine, and. Um, that ran for 20 years and uh, it was never wow. the right time. It was like Daniel kept sending me materials and I was doing some work with them and it was not 
the right time for whatever reason. He was, and then, but we kept doing things, and I kept doing work. And then finally, last year, I don't know exactly why, but it was the, the right moment for it. And then I finished uh, the piece, and then it became an album. But that took 20 years, and so it depends, really. And I have recordings, for example, uh, recordings of while in a wilderness environment. Um, I have lots of recordings that have never been released, and I'm working on several of those. But um, I prefer to leave more time in between the, the, the moment of the recording and the making of whatever it is that I do with them. And in some cases, it's in that range, 10, 20 years. So I have lots of recordings from uh, the Amazon that I've never released. I have lots of recordings from Borneo that are incredible and that I never work on them yet. I have uh, 10 years of recordings in Australia that I haven't touched. So there's a lot of uh, material that I just can't wait to get my hands on. So some things happen very quickly, some things take years. I'm very excited about all of these places that you are mentioning. <laughs> like, how do you choose where you're going next? Is it is it dictated by your profession or are you just like, you know, I need to hear that winds of Borneo, I, these cave systems are insane. I need to go there. Like, how do you select where you're going? Yeah, well, it's it's a mix. I would say it's a mix of the uh, what you think you will be excited about, um, um, especially um, when you've been to many other places before. Um, so you might choose a place because it's different from the type of environment, or you imagine it's going to be different. Uh, I never work with a specific goal because, I, 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 okay, I want to go to this place and record this particular thing. I don't, I don't work that way. I love to be surprised by places. I love to be surprised by things you don't imagine. And this happens always. If you keep that kind of uh, openness to the places, you will find something that you will have never imagined. And uh, this always happened to me. Um, I'm fascinated by many different environments. And uh, I love the rainforest. Um, um, but I also love the desert, you know, and it's incredible. Uh, and everything, every place has a, um, a fascination. Every place has a something rich, something to give, something that is, if you explore, it will, it will be rewarding. So I guess to answer your question, I will first, uh, in the early years, I suppose I, will, I was trying to, to get to know different places, different types of places. Um, and then at some point, you choose according to those those things that you know already. And uh, um, when I went to Borneo, for example, I, I already had been to many other rainforests all over the world. And I thought it would be, well, I was curious to see this, this other environment. I thought it would be similar uh, to other rainforests. And of course, there, there are things in common. But the richness of the uh, Borneo rainforest took me uh, you know, by surprise. Um, Central American rainforests are also very rich, much richer than the Amazon, and in terms, in many different re respects, not only sonically, but also in terms of biodiversity. So um, I guess you choose according to um, how what you know already in the moment of your choice, and of course, depending on your options. I, I haven't been always able to go anywhere I want to go. I would love to. I don't have the the means to do that. So sometimes I had to do it through projects in biology. Sometimes through projects with sound, for when I have the opportunity to do a project with somebody and or with an organization, um, but I would say most of the field work uh, uh, for recordings that I've done has been with uh, with my own means, me paying for uh, for for everything, you know, for the trip. Oh, wow. yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent I spent all the money that I made in my life. I spent traveling basically, and that's that's where the money went. Yeah, uh, actually. 
what I call the MOP Foundation, the MOP Foundation, which is my own pocket <laughs> foundation, <laughs> which, is, which is actually referenced in some of the release as M- MOP Foundation. So, yeah, that's, that depends on your means, whatever is possible. So right now, now we have a different factor, which is the, you know, the situation with restrictions for traveling. So now on top of everything else, you have this other uh, restriction. And so as soon as I, as I can, I want to go to, there's a few places, uh, I mean, the world is very big. So there's, of course, many places I haven't been to and uh, that I would love to. And so I would love to go to Mongolia, for example. I would love to go to uh, Indonesia. I've never been to Indonesia. So, you know, it's like next time I have a chance, if I can, I'll do my best to visit one of those places that I don't know. Would you go to space? Oh, I would love to. Although I'm, I'm, I'm sure sonically, sonically is not very interesting. Because you will hear the, the, everything that happens inside the uh, spaceship and all that, and uh, yeah. we know yeah. that there's no sound in space, so at least not the way it happens normally here. And uh, uh, but of course, for other reasons, I would I would love to, and there's, there's no question about it. That, I heard uh, it has a strange smell. <laughs> yeah, so they say. Yeah, I, I smell something like the moon. There's this uh, our project that had like a, a replica of the uh, the smell of the moon, the sand, the the sound material the rocks of the moon and it smells like burned. Uh, I've smelled that. Um, so yeah, but you know, we're all fascinated by being outside of this <laughs> for, for, for different reasons, I guess I'm against the, uh, by the way, the colonization of Mars. I'm completely against the colonization because of our track record so <laughs> it's, it's, it's of colonization. It's, it's gonna, we're going to do the same thing that we did in other places. You know, it's fascinating the idea for everyone. Yeah including the one that we will never be able to go to Mars. Of course, it's fascinating to think, oh, I mean, Mars, you know, that's amazing. But just because maybe one visit and that's it, but not colonization. That's a big, uh, it's atrocious. It's a little cold for me. <laughs> but you are residing in a new location now. Yes, in Ireland, yeah. Will that inspire some new recordings? And have you recorded in Ireland where you're at before? Um, well, not exactly here. I haven't started doing any recordings uh, here. Um, I've recorded in other places in Ireland in the past, in you know, other years ago. Um, I guess I will end up uh, recording something, I guess, but I have, I'm not in a rush. I have no rush to, because I, I don't want to document or anything like that. And uh, what I've been enjoying so far um, it, immensely is the, the sonic environment here. I live now in a country house. This is in a very rural area and sort of not remote in terms of this, this uh, town nearby, but um, this is in the countryside and it's right on the coast. And uh, so it's it's what most people would say is very quiet. Well, it is not quiet because you get all these storms constantly and all this massive rain and brutal winds and everything. And at this time of the year, this is a normal thing. And I've been enjoying that immensely. I love to uh, you know have that listening environment um, around and, and have that kind of scale and power and presence of sound um, and all of that is, is here. So that is, uh, as a listening experience, is, is absolutely amazing and, uh, and I love it. So that I've been doing and I do my listening practice. So, so that, that's fantastic here. You've done uh, almost countless releases at this point, uh, plenty of live performances, but another aspect of your work is installations. Uh-huh. Can you tell us how you go about how, uh, doing an installation and what, what those mean to you differently from, say, a live performance? Right. Yeah. Well, installations are, are tricky for me uh, um, because uh, the degree of uh, how much control you lose, how much uh, 
not only control, but how much of what you thought about uh, to be produced and to be presented uh, changes depending on the conditions. A performance gives you more opportunities to, to really do what, in, in my experience, do what you want to do. And uh, an installation is different in many different regards. You know, do you have, you're not there most of the time for installations. You have to leave things in the hands of other people. And also the experience typically, um, although you can organize installations in many different ways, but it tends to be that, um, well, people circulate as people go into the space or whatever that is, and then they might leave uh, very soon or, or you don't have any, uh, you know, very, you have less of a, uh, a say in, in what is the, uh, uh, the time spans of the experience in the installation and the ways that happened um, for, for the audience. The experience is, is organized. Um, some things are better for installation. Because they require longer periods of time, because the the uh, sort of the casual component of what the visitor is going to uh, encounter and, and by entering the space might be a good thing that you don't know exactly what the, the person is going to listen to or going to hear. Um, some of some materials or some projects might be better suited for for installation for sure, and um, so sometimes uh, I prefer. Uh, it's good to, to have an installation instead of a performance. In general, I prefer a performance because to me, it gives me the, the um, I can do uh, in, in real time, but I think it should happen, but I believe that it should happen. And installations tend to be frustrating also because the management of installations, the maintenance, the, the daily, um, when they last for you know, a period of time, uh, it's very, uh, very often uh, not taken care of properly and you might, go back to the installation one day and nothing is working or something is not working. Two of the speakers are not working anymore. Nobody has noticed that and that kind of thing. That is very common actually, unfortunately. So that is a bit frustrating in terms of, of, of uh, what the way I like to work. Uh, so it depends. Um, I've done um, a lot of installation work with a, um, uh, repeatedly with, with a, a piece that I made uh, first as a recording and then became an installation. It's called Hyper Rainforest. And it combines many recordings of different rainforests in a number of ways. And that one runs as an installation of one hour uh, cycle. And in some cases, what I've done uh, recently in, um, in a museum in Mexico, they did this uh, a version of this installation. And we did it um, with a schedule so people will know when this thing starts and ends and is repeated. And you can go at any time. But if you go into the space, you know where you are and you know how long that is if you want to stay longer. So you have a reference for the audience of what kind of uh, duration that has and what kind of experience. And uh, it's also a piece that I can do in many different configurations and have 5.1 version that is easy to set up. So it's flexible, it's easy, and it works very well. And then installations um, happen very often. This is another aspect of installations, happen very often in a context of contemporary art or gallery world and in that context the audience that you have the public uh, the people uh, going to see or experience those things uh, might be a, um, a very different kind of public they might have less experience of sound they don't know how to relate to sound which is a common thing in contemporary art they have no idea uh, about the history of art uh, sound art or the, or the history of practices with sound i don't mean sound art in the traditional sense of today but any practices creative practices with sound the world of contemporary art in general, with very few exceptions, has no idea, no reference. They're always in the ABC. They're always repeating about Rousseau, Cage, and they're always repeating the same things over and over for years and years. So the public of those uh, exhibitions that happen 
where you normally will have a chance to do an sound installation. It's a very different audience, and they will react in different ways. And uh, it might be also frustrating. It's good to have different people, of course. And I'm I will always um, I'm a big defender of presenting these experimental sound practices for people who have no experience whatsoever. But the public of contemporary art, they come with their ideas well-formed about what art is and how it, it is presented and, and deployed and understood. And they find themselves in a conflict to deal with sound. I see this many times, very often. So from that perspective, which is more cultural, uh, I find it also frustrating uh, to work with uh, sound installation. But that's sort of a challenge. A mutual friend of ours actually relayed a story to me about uh, an installation in Mexico where perhaps they didn't have a CD player capable of uh, repeat mode. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, the, the solution he said they proposed was a very uh, amusing one. Can you, can you tell us about that? Well, that's a crazy story. Yeah, that's a crazy situation. This was a, a project, a friend of mine um, in Mexico, a curator. Um, he organized this project where uh, different artists, I think we were like eight or 10 artists, and we'll do interventions or something in private homes in a neighborhood in Mexico City. So each one of the artists will have a, a home, a place where people lived, people who wanted to collaborate with this project, and they will offer space in their home, in their house, to develop the project. And it was completely open. So I was offered a room that was sort of a storage room outside in a small courtyard inside the house. And... Um, and so I decided to do this installation where you will hear the sound only from outside of the room. You could not enter the room. So you could hear sound. Something was happening inside that room, but it was locked. And you couldn't. So I had to uh, design and set up everything according to that principle. So whatever you heard outside, it was what you were supposed to hear, but with the intriguing component of, I cannot go inside the room. So there's something happening inside the room. And I wasn't imitating anything or simulating anything, but it was a sound piece to be listened. It was sort of, for me, it was an experiment and it was designed that way. So what happened with that is that the sound volume inside the room had to be quite high up in order to hear from the outside. Um, and then they didn't have, uh, this is a long time ago, so we were doing this with a CD on CD. I prepared the audio file on a CD and it had to be repeated throughout entire days, so, you know, and uh, every day for nonstop for a few hours. And um, so it required a repeat mode in the CD player. They brought all the equipment and then we installed all the equipment, but the CD player didn't have the repeat function. So I said, listen, this is very crucial because this piece is like, I think it was like 15 minutes and it's a cycle, it's a loop. So we need to repeat it. And we had no option. I couldn't, it was impossible to do like a version on the computer or whatever. So we needed the CD player. And the guy of the rental company, he said, Oh, that's no, it's no problem. We have this guy here, one of the kids, a young kid that was helping them with the carrying all the subwoofers and everything. And he said, he can stay in the room and he'd play every 15 minutes. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not only this is crazy because this is like a, it will be a form of slavery anyway, whatever he's playing here, but it's going to be in a dark room for eight hours, blasting sound inside and playing, uh, re, uh, you know, play again every 15 minutes. That's no way. <laughs> we do that. <laughs> so, anyway, horrible, horrible. Uh, so that they found a CD player with repeat. So, so he did it, and it was great. Yeah, it was, uh, everything was fine, and the key survived. Uh, he only had to carry heavy subwoofers, but not be tortured in that room. <laughs> That's great. Amazing.
Francisco, this has been such an incredible conversation. As we said, this has been something we've been looking forward to for a really long time. We so want to ask so you much. questions for eight hours yeah, straight. For, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, next we time we'll know we'll, everything. We'll, we'll go in that in that little uh, storage room and uh, lock ourselves in for eight hours. Yeah. You can't leave, <laughs> and we will just <laughs> talk for eight hours. Bring some, bring some wine. Bring some wine. Hey, that sounds 100%. good to us. But before we go, of course, we do want to give you the opportunity you got anything coming out you have something new out now and where can people follow you to keep up with new releases okay well um yeah i don't do mailing list anymore or website i don't do uh, social media in the current sense so uh but i do have a bandcamp um site actually i have two so if you look for francisco lopez bandcamp francisco lopez and experimental music whatever you will find me quickly I have that bank site where I'm releasing uh, new things and also re-releasing old things. This is in, in the making. So there's many, many releases that are not there, but I'm doing this slowly. And, uh, you know, as, as probably many other artists is, particularly experimental artists, Bandcamp is, as unlike Spotify and other platforms like uh, streaming platforms, Bandcamp is really, I would say, fair with the artists. It's a good exposure. Everything is there completely full length for streaming for free for whoever wants to just listen online. And uh, But support through Bandcamp is very much appreciated, for sure. And, and that, that's something we we're, we're very yes. feel very strongly about and always encourage everyone to directly support artists and labels. And that's the, a great way to do it yep. these days. Absolutely. In fact, I, I should say, this is the first time in my life, I never made any money from releases. You know, believe it or not, it's like it's always small editions and it's really very hard to, to make any money. And uh, and this is not, you know, about making money. It's about surviving or having a minimal survival, which it, it is really challenging. Everyone is saying the same thing, you know, but it's true. I don't have a job. I don't have uh, any funding. So I'm, you know, and so that is uh, support is very much appreciated. And there's a second Bandcamp site that I created for collaborations, for duo collaborations with artists, where I'm releasing and again, reissuing uh, releases that I've done in the past, and there's many, with very different artists. Uh, and that is called, the name of the, of the site is Two-Headed Snake. And if you search for that in Bandcamp, you will find it also quickly. So support through those. And through those platforms, you can hear hours and hours of, of my work, solo and in collaboration with other artists. Fantastic. Sounds great. And uh, we will and put links we'll... up to both of those things in the description so everyone can find it nice and easy. Excellent. Well, listen, thanks very much for the interest. Thank you for having me in, in your podcast. And uh, like I said before, I really can't wait for the for the next chance to to retry again that, that show in, in LA and the rest of the tour. Yes. And definitely that needs to include uh, wine, uh, one or two wine tasting opportunities. That sounds <laughs> perfect to us. We <laughs> will plan on it. Well, thank you so much, Francisco. Thank you. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artist for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.